politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. I really appreciate you joining us on the radio uh, every Tuesday afternoon at, at uh, 1 o'clock. And of course, uh, besides broadcasting to all of Southern California, we're live streaming on the internet at kpfk.org. So uh, put it in your calendar, set a reminder on your phone, tell your friends, and <laughs> make it a point to join us live whenever you can. A uh, fascinating show today. We did a program on so-called ESP, uh, parapsychology, sometimes called the paranormal, with an eminent scientist a few months ago, Dr. Dean Radin from the uh, IONS Institute. He's the chief researcher at uh, the IONS Institute. Uh, that's a research organization set up by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, as you probably know, who in the uh, early 1970s did some ESP experiments from the moon while he was orbiting uh, the moon. And uh, today we're going to talk about another aspect of uh, ESP, which is precognition. Now, I think we can talk about telepathy and clairvoyance, which has come to be called remote viewing. And it's, for most people, pretty easy to get their heads around this. But today we're going to talk about premonition, prophecy, and the more common term, I think, precognition. And my guest is the author of a couple of uh, very good books on the whole idea of precognitive dreams and dreaming. And it includes what he calls retrocausation. What do you, what do you hear about this? It's an idea that uh, is also grounded in quantum physics, that time runs in, uh, I was going to say in both directions, but I guess today I will tell you it, it even goes beyond that, that there really is no direction in time. That's how we usually think of it. Time travel, either forward or back. But uh, Einstein and a lot of the quantum science, quantum physics researchers uh, alive today are suggesting that time really should not be thought of as directional, but rather as another dimension, such that there are four dimensions, the three dimensions of space, height, width, and depth, one way to describe it, and the fourth dimension of time. So what does it mean if time is a dimension and not a direction? Well, the implications are mind-boggling, but I'd like to talk about how such things could be possible. First, just in terms of 
remote viewing or so-called mental telepathy? How can we read each other's mind? And I'd like to suggest that you try a little simple experiment. Uh, you can do this without hurting anybody, <laughs> including yourself. Uh, next time you're in a public place, stare at the back of somebody's head and see how long it takes them to turn around and catch you staring at them. And then you can look away quickly so that, you know, or act like, uh, you know, you're just casually hanging out. You won't get in any trouble. And then you do that repeatedly, and you're going to have to wonder, how is it that this gaze detection, that's what it's being called in the research, is possible? Some scientists are suggesting there are uh, specialized neurons in the brain that, uh, well, their, their sole job is to know when someone's looking at you uh, or when their intention is put upon you. Beyond gaze detection, have you ever had the experience of thinking about someone who maybe hasn't come to mind in quite a while and suddenly they pop into your head, and minutes later the phone rings, and it's them, right? That sort of begs the question, did they call because you thought of them, or did you did you think of them because they were uh, preparing to call you? And maybe it doesn't matter, because as our guest will say, it's quite possible for the effect to precede the cause that uh, it can be some event in our future that has an impact on our present. Now, again, how could such, such a thing be? Actually, we can look at religious theology, not any particular organized religion, but the basic philosophical divisions of theology East and West. And I'm talking about monotheism, of the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim uh, traditions, religions, monotheism versus the monism of all of the Eastern religions. Now, monotheism really believes in the objectivity of the physical dense universe and that everything is separated, even the creator is separated, and imbues its creation with some sort of spirit, but nevertheless lives outside of it someplace far away. Whereas the philosophies of monism, Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and Taoism oh, and most of the Eastern uh, religions are uh, based on the idea of monism, which is that we're all immersed in an ocean of awareness or consciousness that we're all connected, that we share a common source, divinity, something absolute, that which, again, the West personifies as God, a human-shaped being, but uh, which uh, many philosophers and theologians would consider idolatry. And if indeed that's the case, if we're all part of... Uh, this ocean of awareness or consciousness, if we're all plugged into the same switchboard, then such things are understandable. So stay tuned. You're going to love this show. You may even want to record it. 
uh, my guest, Eric Wargo. And uh, I'll introduce him in just a couple of minutes. Let's take a short break, and we'll come right back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars. Trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School today on KPFK. 90.7 FM for all of Southern California. And of course, we stream for the world at kpfk.org. Mystery School is a program, as we say in the introduction, about consciousness. It's about self-awareness. Actually, there's, if you look at consciousness and awareness from sort of an elevated perspective, there's no subject that isn't, uh, that it doesn't include or touch upon. But today we're going to go into one of my favorite areas, and that's, uh, oh gosh, we could call it the paranormal or, or parapsychology. We'll see what my guest has to say about those terms. But he is a science writer, so... I want you to do any mental calisthenics that you can do and get your mind open and uh, get ready as we talk about premonitions, uh, precognition, and particularly those uh, prophetic dreams that so many people report. How can this be? How does it work? My guest today is the author of a couple of books. He's a science writer. He's an independent researcher. He has a degree, his, uh, his PhD is in anthropology, but his interests go far beyond that. And uh, it's a pleasure to have him with us today. He's the author of two books that, that I know of. There may be others, we'll find out. One is called Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, how about that word, and The Unconscious. And the new book, is precognitive dream work and the long self interpreting messages from your future. And he is Eric Wargo, and he's calling us from Virginia today. And Eric, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate you being here and sharing your work with us. Uh, the more I learned about your book, and your research, the more the more fascinated I became. I'm I'm curious here at the top of the show about what drew you into this field of premonition and precognition and and even dream work. What, what's your initial interest in them? Yeah, well, it's funny. Uh, I had so I took a sort of roundabout path to get here. I. I had a scientific background uh, and, you know, went to graduate school in uh, social science and so on. And I'd always been very uh, skeptical about ESP, and, but I didn't really know much about it. And then uh, about 12, 13 years ago, I, I actually had a UFO encounter <laughs> of all things. And it wasn't, it wasn't up close and personal or anything, but 
uh, I it sent me down the rabbit hole of reading about UFOs, and I discovered in the process that that parapsychology is a topic that dovetails very interestingly with the UFO topic. That a lot of people who have UFO encounters have precognitive dreams associated with them. They have telepathic experiences and so on. And it forced me uh, to sort of come to grips with the literature on, on, on precognition and, and psychic phenomena. And I realized, oh my gosh, there's a century of really strong evidence, uh, laboratory support for these phenomena. Um, and I also started you know, delving into the topic of precognitive dreams and having been a lifelong, uh, had an interest in, in dreams all my life and recorded my dreams for decades, actually, at that point, uh, I realized, well, I've had those dreams. I just, I had just ignored them in the past, but I was forced to sort of take a new look. And, and that sort of sent me down, you know, this path of the past 10 years of really researching and writing about precognition uh, in a focused way. So you're obviously not a pot smoker if you remember your dreams, right? That's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that uh, intrigued me when I stopped smoking pot years ago. I was a pothead all my life and then uh, rarely would remember any of my dreams. I, I was assured by the literature that I'd read in my life that I was dreaming. Oh, yeah. It's just the short-term memory gets blown out by weed. And, uh, <laughs> my goodness, some of my dreams came rushing in a decade ago and full color and great detail. And they began to uh, be lucid. I had this sense mm -hmm. of being in the dream while I was dreaming. And yet that's difficult for me to explain because... It seems to come in various degrees mm -hmm. of, of lucidity. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about your sense of lucid dream? If someone in our audience has no idea what a lucid dream is, why don't you start by defining it for us? Sure. A lucid dream is where you essentially wake up within the dream, that it's still a dream environment. Uh, you're still in the dream, but you're aware that you're dreaming. And there's a spectrum. I mean, a lot of lucid dreams, you know, you'll just be aware that you're dreaming, but you really won't have much control over what's happening. But uh, especially with practice doing it, uh, a lot of people, expert lucid dreamers develop an ability to control their environment, to, to control their own actions, and it becomes almost like this immersive uh, virtual reality experience, basically. But there is a spectrum there. Uh, I personally am not a, a very facile lucid dreamer. I will occasionally spontaneously have lucid dreams. I've, you know, occasionally have been able to induce them deliberately and there are methods you can use to induce them. Uh, but I still don't, I still have trouble controlling everything in the, in the dream world. And I've, in my case, I find that the less that I try to control things, the more I can stay in that environment. And when I start to control things, I'll tend to wake up pretty quickly. So, uh, but I'm, that's because I'm not, you know, an expert, but people who work with this, you know, it's like anything else, any other skill that you can practice and get better and better and better at. Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense to me. If you make an effort to exert your will, that's going to bring you toward the conscious state. So uh, it's more like, an, like any good meditation, it's a matter of allowing right. 
and permitting, letting go. Uh, right. Let me ask you about something I've always wondered about, and that's that I never seem to be able to find my feet in my <laughs> dreams. I, if I go downstairs, I float. Right. Uh, first of all, I'm never concerned with where my feet are, but it was the phenomena of numerous times I'd go downstairs in my dreams and suddenly be at the bottom of the stairs, and I never took a step. I just sort of... Then I started thinking about how ghosts are portrayed, you know, as this mm-hmm. big bed sheet that's floating around, and <laughs> Casper the Friendly and all of that. Right. Um, is there anything in the literature about lucid dreaming, about seeing your feet or not seeing your feet? Or? Well, if it's a lucid dream, you wouldn't, uh, I mean, what you're describing sounds almost more like an out-of-body experience. And I think there's a, there is a spectrum there, too. That's part of the spectrum, I think, of sort of altered states of dreaming, where uh, you have lucid dreams that are kind of in a, you know, a very dreamlike world, it's very irrational, and so on. There are also... Uh, I would I consider them dream states, but but people who experience these things and think that consciousness is leaving the body during these states think that they are actually out of body, and they will describe looking looking at their body or looking you know seeing their feet or not or whatever. Um, so what you could be if it's a very realistic environment, and you feel like you're in your house or whatever, and you're going down the stairs in your house. I mean that's almost what I would call an out of body experience. Um, something that um, uh, Robert Monroe back in the 1960s and 70s um, described in his guidebooks on the subject, Journeys Out of the Body and so on. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure which you're experiencing there, but I think I, I personally think they're all part of the sort of same continuum. Well, there you've said spectrum, you've said continuum. Uh, I, I said something about it being a relative experience. And that's part of the challenge of getting our arms around all of this is that uh, like no two experiences are alike similar in many ways. But I guess it's it, the challenge is to, to generalize about this. Now, from dreams to the idea of precognition, um, the word sort of explains itself, cognition to know. Um, to know in advance would be precognition. Right. Did this begin for you with a, a precognitive dream of your own? Was it one or many? Or well, it was it was many actually, and uh, again, some of them were before I really got interested in the topic. I, for instance, and I described this in my new book, Precognitive Dreamwork in the Long Self. I had a dream on the morning of nine eleven uh, that related. It wasn't obviously like planes crashing into buildings or anything like that. But the symbolism in the dream was very strikingly connected to the events of that day. And so many people reported similar experiences, both vivid, like obviously precognitive uh, experiences of, of, you know, premonitions of planes crashing or terrorist attacks in New York in the days leading up to 9-11 and some more symbolic like mine was. Uh, dreams typically speak in symbolism. They're typically not like video quality representations of something that's going to happen. But uh, so that, you know, when I started getting interested in this topic, I then went back. Luckily, I had kept a detailed dream journal. So I was able to go back to some of these old dreams of mine and sort of examine them again with new eyes. Uh, and I'd had I'd had a number of experiences like that. Typically, they were around more boring 
you know, daily life things like something that was going to happen at work, you know, well, I'd had a dream the night before about this very unusual situation. And then it would play out in my, in my day, the next day. Uh, and that actually is more typical people that most precognitive dreams are really about mundane experiences, uh, or relatively mundane experiences. And those typically don't rise to the level of paying them much attention because, well, who cares? I dreamed about the, you know, the sink backing up, you know, the next day, well, that's not a big deal. It's not like, you know, a disaster or a terrorist attack or something like that. But, uh, I, I started anyway, re realizing, oh, this is a, a, not an uncommon phenomenon. And, and this is something that's been noticed for a century. I mean, the, the, the pioneer in this study of precognition and precognitive dreams was an aeronautical engineer in England named J.W. Dunn. Uh, about a century ago, who he noticed all this stuff. He he was constantly having dreams, mostly about news stories, things that he would read in the news the next day. And he started recording them, started studying them, and you know realized that that these were essentially like future memories. There were his memory going the wrong direction in time. Uh, and so anyway, that he he's one of the big pioneers in this field, and I, my I, my work sort of kind of piggybacks on on his pioneering work but it's a very common phenomenon when you start doing what i call precognitive dream work which is following a few simple steps to identify precognition in your dream life you'll start noticing ha it happening all the time you know multiple times a week even you talked about the symbolism the metaphor the allegory in dreams in 9-11, there's even a tarot card of two towers falling and uh, a couple of decks. I think some of the more popular decks actually show a man falling out of the of the tower that looked very much like one of the famous pictures from that day. And that deck's got to be 100 years old. But, you know, again, it, in the tarot deck, it doesn't represent skyscrapers in new york falling it's a it's a it's a metaphor or an allegory i'm thinking of carl jung's work on synchronicity and in my life i've often used well it's sort of a catchphrase for me if i see a coincidence in my life that has a feeling of being a meaningful uh coincidence i ask myself if this were a dream what would it mean and I'm wondering if the waking right. state is just another kind of a dream. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it that way. And certainly mystics throughout, you know, history and all cultures have have taken that approach to waking life, seeing it as a dream. Um, Carl Jung was a pioneer in this area. Uh, he he was writing his works on synchronicity. He was thinking about synchronicity and and, and writing about it in sort of the years after uh, ESP became sort of formalized as a topic of study uh, in science, although still not mainstream science. But anyway, he was responding to that, but he didn't think that parapsychology and the methods of parapsychology could really get at what was really um, going on. And so he, he sort of coined this term synchronicity and, and people, uh, and it's been very popular. And to this day, people who experience these kinds of coincidences or 
what I consider to be precognitive dreams, they'll sort of use that rubric of synchronicity because most people haven't heard of precognition, <laughs> you know, uh, but they've heard of synchronicity and it seems to fit. Um, so in my books, I talk a lot about Carl Jung and his role in moving us toward a place where we can accept uh, the reality of precognition. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have two books. You just made a reference to the book. Are you talking about your latest uh, precognitive dream work on the long self? I'm talking about both of them. I actually devote a lot of real estate in both of my books to Carl Jung and synchronicity. Do you suggest people read does it matter which order they read your books in? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, the the more recent book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, I think is the is the simpler book. I mean, if you're looking for really a guide, I wrote it as a guide uh, to help people with their dreams, and it's kind of got a dream theory embedded in it. Uh, but and it sort of simplistically talks about the uh, the theory under underlying it and how this could work. Uh, my first book, Time Loops, was more on the the science. Uh, the evidence, um, and it goes into much more detail on the possible physics underlying it, and so on. And then I sort of apply that in the second half of the book to some famous precogs, uh, I call them, people who, you know, regularly experience precognition. Uh, and I link it to uh, psychological theories and the psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud, for instance, who I think is really important in this area. Um, but, this, but after I wrote that book, I got so many emails from people wanting to know about their dreams that I realized, okay, there needs to be a kind of more condensed uh, guide to, to precognition in dreams and dream work. And so that's, what I, that's why I wrote uh, the new book, Precognitive Dream Work and the Long Self. Well, whether waking life is a dream or not, uh, we've already talked about how relative these states are, and you've used the word spectrum and continuum. Let's go down this rabbit hole uh, a little uh, farther. What's the long self, for example? Right. Well, one of the things you start to realize when you start realizing that you are precognitive, and everybody is precognitive, I, I really have come to the conclusion that this is basic to our mental functioning, our cognition, and to our brains functioning. I, I really think it is a, a brain-based phenomenon. And once you awaken to the fact that you are in your dreams and even in waking life, you are getting input from your future self. And that can mean yourself the next day, but it can also mean yourself in maybe three decades. I mean, there, I've got a lot of examples of dreams that span decades of a person's life. Um, you, once you realize that, it's a really life-altering uh, thing to realize that you extend through time. You know, we the 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 I the 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 self that we usually think of is the self right in this moment. Right. We think of the past. It's kind of dead and gone. And the future. Well, it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't exist. Well, precognitive dream work and just awakening to precognition in general, it, you realize, no, you're a long self. You're extending through time. Uh, and not only are future experiences that you don't know about, you don't know consciously about them, but they are influencing you today you know, or tonight when you go have a dream you might dream about something you know years or decades in your future um that's mind-blowing but then when you 
realize, well, that means that your experiences today might have influenced you years or decades in the past. And it might even be that your experiences as a, in midlife, for instance, may have influenced you as a child, you know, or a teenager or something like that. That's another mind-blowing realization that you have. And you start to develop this awareness that you extend through time and that you are part of a being that is four-dimensional. Um, it's some, you know, we sometimes call it a, like a four-dimensional worm, you know, <laughs> snaking through uh, what is sometimes called the, the block universe, uh, which was a, a realization that Einstein's teacher made on the basis of Einstein's discoveries uh, over a century ago, that, that we live in a four-dimensional space-time not just a three-dimensional uh, space. Uh, and and we are we extend through that block universe uh, for, you know, a few decades or several decades, you know, ideally. And um, and it, it just it awakens you to that 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 length of your life and how you are interacting uh, with your past and with your future and how your future is interacting with your past and so on. You know, I've worked as a hypnotherapist for over 40 years and have a lot of experience with past life regression when people ask for it. And also as a subject, I've had, you know, I've, I've been the subject and experienced my past lives. Uh, why not future life progression? Well, I don't, that's a little bit out of my uh scope you know whether you know the the reality of future and past lives i i, I sort of bracket that i'm not willing to sort of go there <laughs> as far as well wait, wait a minute uh, I, I thought you just did aren't you saying that we're living all of our lifetimes simultaneously no i meant i meant our life birth to death i meant i meant you know the you know the, the life that's ahead of you and the life you know back to childhood now but you've also used the term future memories right and i mean memory of your future in your life i mean uh, a memory <laughs> oh, of oh I see. yeah a memory I see. of of something that might happen tomorrow uh, precognition is a form of memory i see okay uh i've heard quantum physicists say time runs in both directions i want to ask you about that but i need to take a quick break We'll be, we'll be right back. I told you this was going to be fascinating. And again, if you want to remember your dreams, you got to stop smoking pot. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just telling you it blows out short-term memory. That's all. Uh, my guest is Eric Wargo, and he's the author of a couple of books on precognition. And we'll be right back with more of this fascinating discussion. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Uncle Vanya, a modern revival of Anton Chekhov's classic masterpiece, running June 1st through June 26th. After years of caring for their family's crumbling estate, Vanya and his niece receive an unexpected family visit. This translation of Uncle Vanya provides an up-close, contemporary encounter with this enduring drama. For further information on Pasadena Playhouse's production of Uncle Vanya, visit Pasadena Playhouse playhouse.org or kpfk.org.
Thanks for staying with us. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK FM in Los Angeles, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. We also podcast this program and even post it to YouTube. So just search for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. You'll find us all over the internet. But I really appreciate you joining us on the radio and being part of the group mind here. My guest today is Eric Wargo, and he's the, among other things, as a science writer, the author of two fascinating books, one's called Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, we got to get to that, and The Unconscious. And his more recent book is Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, Interpreting Messages from Your Future. But you're saying not a future lifetime, but the future in this lifetime, right? Right. Okay. Well, we'll do another show sometime and talk, <laughs> talk about multiple lifetimes. We got our hands full here, though, with this one. Um, time running in both directions, recausation. How would you respond to the premise or theorem that time runs in both directions? Yeah, time, you know, we have these metaphors about of time, you know, time is an arrow, time is a river, and so on. Well, time, what Einstein discovered with his thought experiments about trains on different tracks and so on, what, what he discovered is time is a dimension, just like, you know, length, width, and height, you know, the three dimensions of space. Time is another dimension. It doesn't have a direction to it. And that opens up all kinds of possibilities. Now, it's been believed we, we think of time as a one-way arrow or as a, as a river because in our daily experience, it seems that causes only go in one direction, right? I mean, it, it doesn't feel like effects happen before causes, um, which would be, go, you know, time going the other direction. And, and in the Enlightenment, since the sort of the days of the Enlightenment about 300 years ago, uh, it's been forbidden for scientists to even consider such a thing you know, backwards causation. There used to be this thing called teleology. That is to say, the idea that there may be a purpose and a destination to things. And that implicitly is kind of a, a backwards causation, right? Uh, but that was kicked out of science uh, back at its beginnings, um, back with Newton and, and those guys. But about, you know, a century ago, you know, the discoveries in quantum physics and relativity kind of threw these things into question a little bit because Einstein's discoveries said, like I said, that time is a dimension. It's not a river or an arrow going in a single direction, which opens up the possibility that you could travel backwards in time. And in fact, any cosmologist or not any, but most cosmologists will say, yeah, it's, that's a, it's a possibility. Time travel is a real possibility and we're probably going to do it ourselves at some point. Now in, in quantum physics, there's also been this thing called uncertainty or randomness at the very smallest scales in nature, the sort of direction of, of time's arrow becomes indeterminate. You can't tease out what's happening before what at the smallest scales in nature. And just in the last, literally just the last couple of decades, measurement sensitivity in experiments has developed to an extent that they can now demonstrate causes traveling backwards in time in in particles when they interact 
uh, it's controversial still, but more and more physicists are saying, hey, this is part of nature at the smallest scales, at least causes do travel backwards in time, not just forwards in time. Now, at the same time as you have that going on in in the, the esoteric realms of quantum physics, you also have biologists who are realizing that all these spooky quantum effects are being scaled up in biological systems, and they're important to life. Um, and just this was really the birth of quantum biology was, I think, in 2007, when a team of researchers discovered that photosynthesis depends on quantum processes happening in plants. And then since then, there's been all these discoveries about quantum physics, spooky entanglement stuff going on in uh, bird navigation and, and the operation of enzymes, for instance. And the brain has often been thought to be probably quantum computer of some sort. And so there's been a sort of gold rush to try and explain consciousness, for instance, using quantum physics. Uh, I think that these converging lines of evidence are going to lead to a physical explanation, ultimately, for how precognition works uh, in the brain, that it does depend on quantum properties at a molecular level, probably, in neurons, uh, and that they affect uh, how, how uh, learning occurs, that we may, you know, learning and memory might really be a function not only of our past experience, but to some degree of our future experience. And that would explain uh, that would explain a lot of the things that we see uh, both in the laboratory and parapsychology experiments in the laboratory. And it could potentially explain things like precognitive dreams. I misspoke a minute ago. I said recausation. Your word is retrocausation. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just describing, that idea of causes traveling backwards in time. That is to say, an effect that precedes its cause. Uh, so that's all that retrocausation means. I, I guess one way we could look at this, at least this is what's uh, bubbling up for me, is the phrase uh, life imitating art. Mm -hmm. And if I look at those old Star Trek uh, shows from the 60s, you know, the original with Kirk and Spock, um, they're using flip phones, mm -hmm. you know, 20, 25 years before we had flip phones. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, <laughs> his production, they had flip phones, so to speak. And we wouldn't have to work too hard to find other examples of that. Is that simply life imitating art? Uh, or could that be an example of what you're calling retro causation. Yeah, that's well, most cases like that are very hard to tell because uh, that while that could be a kind of prophetic thing on the part of Gene Roddenberry, uh, it could also be the, simply be the case that the people who designed flip phones were Star Trek fans and they, they wanted to create something like what they'd seen on TV. And that, you know, teasing out that those causes, those regular, you know, forward in time <laughs> causes from possible prophecy and art is a very difficult thing. But in fact, this is what I'm working on right now. My next book is going to be about uh, about precognition in art and its relation to creativity. And there are a lot of, of I think, very clear cases of artists, writers, sort of channeling you know, unpredictable future events um, in their in their works. Uh, there, I mean, when you go down the rabbit hole on this topic, there are just so many, I mean, there are a million cases of this. And, uh, I think that, 
while people in their daily life are going to be more likely to access precognition in dreams, um, if you're a creative person at all, or if you write, you know, creatively, or you paint or do some sort of artwork, you can definitely notice, you know, foreshadowings of future things in your own life, uh, in your creative work. So, yeah, I think that, that creativity is one of the, one of the real channels for precognition. I want to go back a minute to, um, what appeared to me to be your resistance to the idea of, uh, transmigration or reincarnation and, you said, no, no, I, when I talk about the future, I only mean in this lifetime. Why, why do you dig in your heels at that point? Because it's out of my expertise. And I, I'm making an argument that precognition is a, is a material brain-based phenomenon, that the brain ultimately will be able to explain this. So that can't explain uh, things like uh, you know, past life memories or, or whatever. Not that those don't exist. I simply, you know, my qualifications don't enable me to, to talk about that. And I don't want to speculate and I don't want to, you know, mix up, I think, what is very clear evidence for, uh, for precognition, uh, as I'm describing it, with, uh, with experiences that, uh, you know, the evidence is, is a very different kind of evidence, I think. I get it. So you want to stay grounded in empiricism, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. That's great. There's no shortage of people that are willing to you know, speculate about all manner of things, especially when we talk about these out-of-body and near-death experiences, as as we've done. We had uh, Dr. Raymond Moody on a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. He's, you know, his book on life after life is almost 50 years old now. and. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Evan Alexander, what a great show that was. And again, here's a scientist, you know, a, a brain surgeon who's talking about his death experience, his near-death experience. And he still can't explain how he's able to function without a cortex. He has no cortex. It was mm -hmm. eaten away by a bacteria. And I said, well, how do you function? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> Which I... Which I really love, you know, the humility of the scientist. All of this that we're talking about also brings up for me the debate between free will and determinism. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. And I get asked that question a lot because, yes, that's what immediately the idea, any kind of time travel, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about information traveling backwards in time. Um, that always raises uh, the question of, well, what is free will and what uh, if and if, you know, if you <clears throat> saw, you know, if you had a premonition of a disaster, well, if, if you took action to prevent it, well, you know, how, how, how did you get that permission and so on? Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of really interesting questions related to that. I think free will is baggage that we should discard. <laughs> I don't think it's very helpful in thinking about our lives. Um, you know, I can, my actions right now feel freely willed. I'm talking to you, I'm choosing what to say and so on. But from the standpoint of future me, you know, even five seconds from now, that guy talking, well, he's in the past and that's, you know, it's, it's set in stone. It's, uh, and, and you could theoretically trace all of the causes that led to that in a way that make it look deterministic. 
And so, you know, Einstein himself, you know, said that we need to get rid of this idea of free will. It's just a, it's just an illusion, really. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's one of these complex things. It, you know, we experience our free will, absolutely. But there's a vantage, there's always a vantage point on a freely willed action that sees it as determined. Um, so that tells me that maybe it's not helpful you know, to have this concept of free will. I'm a, my sort of tradition is Zen. Okay. And a lot of Zen Satori experiences are actually experiences of the block universe. What I described as the block universe, which is to say this kind of, Oh, this kind of underlying permanence and eternity um, that's underlying what feels like flux and, and freedom and all that. It's kind of an experience of determinism, but a very blissful determinism that it's just very hard to convey you know here having a conversation it sounds that sounds awful you know who, who wants determinism but in these states it's oh my god that it's like a a blissful thing to realize this and i so i like to to tell people just kind of set aside this baggage of of free will <laughs> in thinking about this stuff because i think the block universe is kind of a koan really it's a kind of a riddle and you when you more you wrap your head try to wrap your head around it um you're gonna eventually reach a point where you bust open and you kind of have a, an enlightenment experience about about reality that kind of transcends this idea sometimes i wonder if it's a false dichotomy could both things be at work could we have uh a predetermined situation and sort of like boundaries or limits within which we have some degree of choice. Could both things be true? Uh, yeah, it's a both. I mean, I think it is a both and, you know, it's a both and. I mean, it's, you know, from different points of view, it's what it's, you know, from one point of view, it's freedom, you know, total spontaneity and undetermined. And another point of view, it's, it's determination. And it's, you're not going to make, you're not going to make it reconcile, you know, do you have in your book any practical tips for how people can promote lucid dreaming or precognitive dreams? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. Uh, there's, I think my new book has like 27 principles that, that I sort of identify through the course of the book, but it, it boils down to a three-step process. Uh, the first step, which is something that if you're already interested in dreams, you might already do, which is write down all your dreams. Just write down every dream that you can remember. It doesn't matter if it seems significant or not. Uh, just just write it down in as much detail as you can muster. Um, that's the first step. The second step is, uh, will sound esoteric, but it's not. It, it's just free associate on everything that you're writing down when you write it down. Like what's, you know, the color of the shirt of some guy in your dream, you know, it was very distinctive. Just write down, like, what's the first thing that comes to mind thinking about that shirt? Or what's the first thing that that person calls to mind? Or the situation in the dream? Is there just something that it reminds you of? Maybe a movie, maybe some random thing that happened in your childhood or whatever. Just write that down, that, that free association stuff, um, because that'll help you identify precognition in your dreams later. Now, the, that, just set, then, set your dream journal aside then, and don't even think about it. But... At the end of the day, open up your dream journal and read your dream from that morning and those free associations that you wrote down and do the same thing for the, la the previous few days, okay? And just reflect on connections that you notice between those dream records and events in your waking life. 
in the intervening time, because that's how you're going to notice precognition. See, I mean, people think of precognition as rare because no one does that. No one does that going back to their recent dream records. You know, some people, sometimes people will pull out an old dream and read it. But by that time, the events that it probably precognized are long forgotten so that you won't remember what was going on in your life, especially the mundane things in your life. So that's why it's important to go back to your dream records as a daily kind of exercise at the end of the day and just look at those dreams uh, and you'll be surprised. I mean, I, I, people who do this exercise often find that about a quarter of their dreams that they identify some identifiable connection to things in their life. And often if they sort of notice a connection, then they, when they scrutinize that dream further, they'll realize that all the aspects of the dream actually connect to that that same window of waking time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I've had great testimonials of people buying my book and having a precognitive dream on the first night, you know, they, they, I'm not going to give a money back guarantee or anything, but I've heard, I've gotten a lot of emails of people saying, Oh my God, I bought your book. I you know started a dream journal that night and had this dream. And it turned out to be about something in the next chapter that I read the next day, you know, and that they were reading in my book. So there's this kind of fractal geometry to, to all this stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, it's, it's those three steps, record your dreams, free associate and go back to your dream records. You mentioned Freud and in, in, in Jung, and I think there's a big slice of psychology where people would perhaps caution us about what is uh, often referred to as magical thinking, where we believe we find meaning, and yet uh, it's just projection and, and, and fanciful imagining. Um, do you caution people in that regard? Should they throw caution to the wind or should we find a balance here and not get carried away? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and this is a criticism that's been leveled, uh, against psychoanalysis for, you know, a century, uh, or more, you know, and because, you know, the person doing the interpreting is ultimately a subjective person and, you know, you decide what's meaningful for you and, and so on. And so, uh, scientists, kind of hate the whole psychoanalytic tradition for that reason. And it's a, you have to strike a balance. You have to, you have to strike a reasonable balance between this subjective assigning of meaning to things and well, what's, what really holds weight there. And there's no hard and fast rules for how you do that, but it's, it's, it's definitely an issue because people, you know, whether it's, you know, doing precognitive dream work or being, you know, following their synchronicities or whatever, there is always the danger of just making everything connect up as meaningful and, and so on. And you can drive yourself crazy <laughs> doing that. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a, a need for balance. Um, I always caution people to be reasonable. Uh, you know, reason is not, is not something that people talk about much anymore. Uh, you know, it's sort of this thing that old timey philosophers talked about reason and, and all that. But you really have to use reason to balance the kind of subjective or the subjective interpretive framework uh, that you're utilizing for this with a kind of evidential scientific mindset that, you know, is the, 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 they, they sort of work against each other. Uh, and I think reason sort of is in the middle as kind of, a, a, I guess, a diplomat between these two 
kind of ways of, of thinking and ways of seeing. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a real issue. Um, and, but interestingly enough, physics has the same problem because, uh, physics experiments, experiments, I I mentioned those retro causation experiments. It's often hard to tell, you know, whether you're, you're, you're detecting a cause traveling backwards from the future or whether that is really an effect of your own measurement doing that. So you get these same kinds of questions uh, in a lot of esoteric realms of inquiry. <laughs> yeah, observer bias. Or, yeah, bias, right. Yeah. Um, well, I think this could be seen as sort of a left brain, right brain thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're far too left brain dominant. So if we can move into, if we can be a little more fanciful, a little more open minded, I think that's the direction where a better balance can be found. Yeah, I agree. That's why I, I don't spend a lot of time in my <laughs> books. You know, there's there's too many skeptics out there. They're they're ready to pounce on anything like this, uh, and uh, it's time for to sort of press back against that. Yeah, cynicism is so boring. It is so easy to say what yeah. cannot be. Right. You know, any any idiot can. Uh, be a wet blanket and tell you what cannot be done and speak with some sort of uh, fake authority. Right. Uh, just just because we find negative to be so tenacious, uh, negativity and fear and doubt and worry. We got a whole part of the brain that is devoted <laughs> to fear and, and confusion. One more question about dreams. Um, and this is, this may be way outside your purview, but, I've got to ask, years and years ago, maybe 50 years ago uh, in college, I learned a technique to incubate or program dreams to help me solve problems. And as I was going to sleep, I would use these meditative-like states of deep relaxation as I'm moving into the sleep state to suggest that in the morning I'll remember and understand a dream that'll contain information to help me solve a problem I have in mind. And I put a little smile on my lips, take a breath, let go, and sort of surrender that whole thing to the unconscious or the oversoul or Mm -hmm. divinity or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know, but Mm -hmm. there's something up there, a a conscience, a a still small voice, uh, intuition, Mm -hmm. whatever that's comprised of. Do you have uh, any uh, feelings about this, this whole idea of using dreams in this way? And does it fit somehow with your interest in precognitive dreaming? Sure. Um, Some of my earliest experiences sort of with deliberate uh, dream precognition were those exact kind of exercises, uh, sort of uh, where I would try to view. It was I I was trying to do remote viewing exercises, actually, uh, but they turned out to be precognitive. Um, but you know, I would have a, an, my, my wife would print out a picture at work and I would, I would then at night, I would, I would sort of ask for the, you know, a dream that would tell me what was in the envelope. Um, you know, and then I would in the next morning, open the envelope and all that. Um, and I actually talk about this in my new book a bit. So, yeah. And, and one of the, uh, one of the really interesting, more recent people studying, dream precognition, um, his name is Dale Graff. And actually he was he- head of the Stargate, uh, remote viewing program or like the, the defense department, part of that component of that, uh, program back in the, in the eighties. 
And anyway, he went on then after his retirement from the military to write a couple of really interesting books about his adventures with dreaming and precognitive dreaming. And one of his experiments that he does is to sort of go to bed incubating sort of with the question of, you know, what's going to be on page three of the newspaper, you know, tomorrow or in three days or whatever. And then he would write down his dreams or draw his dreams or whatever. And then, you know, and check to see, you know, how closely his dreams corresponded to, to those targets. So it was kind of, it would be kind of an exercise uh, uh, for him. And so, yeah, he's, he's had a lot of success doing that. I think a lot of people, um, do that. So yeah, no, that's definitely within the realm of, of what you can uh, achieve. I try to recommend people not, if they're just starting out with this, don't have great expectations and don't put too many constraints on what you're doing. Just record your dreams and just see, you know, whether they connect to things in your life. Cause I think you're going to have the quickest feedback and the quickest uh, kind of positive experiences doing that. But certainly the more you develop, uh, you know, get, get a few good hits under your belt. Yeah. I mean, test yourself in those ways. That's uh, that's totally great. Yeah. Like any learning, you start slow and then right. Gradually speed up. Right. Eric, how can people, find, <laughs> this is a wonderful interview. How can people find out more about you? Eric Wargo, you have a, a, a website, I'm sure. Yeah, I have a blog. Uh, it's called the night shirt. So the nightshirt.com, all one word. And I'm on Twitter. So uh, my handle is at the nightshirt and people can reach me like by DMing me on Twitter. Uh, and so, and my books are available, you know, wherever books are sold on the internet. And I think the, the new one is available in bookstores as well. Uh, so yeah, those books are time loops and precognitive dream work and the long self. And your blog, the nightshirt is the words of the T H E part of the URL. Yes, it is the nightshirt, the nightshirt.com. Eric Wargo, my guest today from beautiful Virginia, Northern Virginia. We just had a guest a couple of weeks ago from Northern Virginia. We ought to hook you guys up. You'd like him a lot. He's a great philosopher. Thank you, Eric. I know you're busy, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on KPFK. Best of luck, and uh, I bet we'll run into each other again down the calendar. Thank you, Michael. This has been a, a delight. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School streams as a podcast to all player apps, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and also to YouTube. Just search for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Its homepage, where it streams on demand and can be downloaded, is theagelesswisdom.com. T-H-E is part of that URL, theagelesswisdom.com. You can find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. I want to thank my uh, producer, Mark Brisky, and invite you to stay tuned for Carrie Harrison. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK 89.1. <laughs>